Well, howdy, and welcome to another edition of Railfan Roberts Reading Railroad. <laughs> Chapter 9. Sinister Tactics What do you mean you can't slow down, Chet yelled. Turn off the engine. Joe can't, Frank said grimly. He has the throttle to off position and we're still traveling at full speed. There was no choice for Joe but to swing the sleuth into another wide sweeping turn it would have been full hardy to enter the river at such speed, and Joe knew that under the circumstances, he needed lots of room to maneuver. The motorboat zoomed back into the middle of the bay. It seemed to the boys that suddenly there was far more traffic on the bay than there had been before. Look out, Joe! Joe just missed a high-speed runabout. He turned and twisted to avoid the small pleasure boats. The young pilot was more worried about endangering these people than he was about colliding with the larger vessels, which were commercial craft. Keep her as straight as you can, Frank shouted to Joe. I'll take a look at the engine and see what I can do with it. Frank stood up and leaned forward to open the cowling in front of the dashboard as the boat leapt across the waves in the bay. Watch out, Chet yelled as Frank almost lost his balance. Joe made a sharp turn to avoid cutting in front of a rowboat containing a man and several children. Joe realized that the wash of a speeding sloop might upset it. If those people are thrown overboard, he thought, we'll have to rescue them, but how? Fortunately, the boat did not overturn. Frank quickly lifted the cowling from the engine and stepped into the pit. He knew he could open the fuel intake and siphon off the gas into the bay, but this would take too long. I'll have to stop the boat right now, he decided. Frank reached down beside the roaring engine and pulled three wires away from the distributor. Instantly, the engine died, and Frank stood up just as Joe made another sharp to us hitting a small outboard motorboat that had wandered across their path. Good night, Chet cried out. That was a close one. Even with the sluice reduction in speed, the other boat rocked violently back and forth as it was caught in the wash. Frank gasped the gun Unwell, ready to leap over the side and rescue the man if the boat overturned. The smaller craft had been pulled around to face the wash. Though it bounced almost out of the water, the boat quickly resumed an even keel. The lone man in it kept coming toward the sloop. As he drew alongside the night, he began to wave his arms and shout at the boys. What's the matter with you young fools, he yelled. You shouldn't be allowed to operate a boat until you learn how to run one. We couldn't, Joe started to say when the man interrupted. You should have more respect for other people's safety. Frank finally managed to explain. 
It was an accident. The throttle was jammed open. I had to pull the wires out of the distributor to stop her. By this time, the outboard was close enough for its pilot to look over the sluice side into the engine housing, where Frank was pointing at the distributor. The man quickly calmed down. Sorry, boys, he said. There are so many fools running around high-powered boats these days without knowing anything about the rules of navigation. I just got good and mad at your performance. I don't blame you, sir, said Joe. Then he asked, do you think you'd tow us to the municipal dock so we can have repairs made? Glad to. At the dock, the Hardys and Chet watched while the servicemen checked the sloop to find out the cause of the trouble. Presently, he looked up at the boys with an odd expression. What's the trouble? Frank asked. Is it serious? The mechanic's reply startled them. This is a new motorboat and no doubt was in tip-top shape. Somebody tampered with the throttle. What? Joe demanded. The serviceman let and pointed out where a cotter pen had been removed from the throttle group. As the tension spring which opened and closed the valve had been replaced with a bar to hold the throttle wide open once it was pushed there. The Hardys and Chet exchanged glances, which meant the unknown enemy again. The boys, however, did not mention their suspicions to the mechanic. Frank merely requested him to make the necessary repairs on the sleuth. Then the trios walked back to the Hardy's boathouse. Several fishermen were standing at a nearby wharf. Frank and Joe asked them if they had seen anyone near the boathouse. No, each one said. Three boys inspected the boathouse. Frank scrutinized the hasp on the door. The sleuth must have been tampered with while it was inside, unless it was done last night while we were unconscious. There was no sign of the lock having been forced open, but near the edge of the loose hasp there was faint scratches. Look, Joe pointed. Somebody tore the whole hasp off the door and then carefully put it back on. Frank looked grim. I'm sure it was done by the same person who attacked us last night and sent us the warnings. You're right, said Joe. This is what Dad would call sinister tactics. As both brothers wondered which case their enemy was connected, there seemed to be no answer to this tantalizing question, which kept coming up again and again. Chet drove the Queen back to the Hardys, and the brothers rode their motorcycles. When they reached the house, they went at once to the lab with the note Chet had found in his car. They dusted it for fingerprints, but were disappointed again. There was not one trace of a print. The boys, however, found that the paper was the same as that used for the previous mornings. Well, said Joe, I vote we go on out to the mill. The boys went in the Queen. Chet had just bought his car to a stop on the dirt road when Joe called out, 
There's Ken Blake trimming the grass over by the mill race. Now's our chance to talk to him. The three jumped out. Ken looked up, stayed for a second, threw his clippers to the ground. To the boy's surprise, he turned and ran away from them along the stream. Wait, Frank yelled. Ken looked over his shoulder, kept on running. Suddenly, he tripped and stumbled. For a moment, the boy teetered on the bank of the rushing stream. The next instant, he lost his balance and fell headlong into the water. At once, the Hardys and Chet dashed to the water's edge. Horrified, they saw that the force of the water was carrying the boy, obviously a poor swimmer, straight toward the plunging falls. Chapter 12, An Interrupted Chase Frank, quick as lightning, dashed to the mill, streaming plunged in after Ken Blake. The boy was being pulled relentlessly toward the waterfall. In another moment, he would be swept over the brink of the dam. With strong strokes, Frank swam toward the struggling boy. Reaching out desperately, he managed to grasp Ken's shirt. Joe jumped in to assist Frank. The two boys were buffeted by the rushing water, but between them, they managed to drag Ken back from the falls. Easy, Frank cautioned the frightened youth. Relax, we'll have you out in a jiffy. Despite the weight of their clothes, the Hardys, both proficient at life-saving techniques, soon worked Ken close to the bank. Chet leaned over and helped haul him out of the water. Then Frank and Joe climbed out. To their relief, Ken, though white-faced and painting from exhaustion, seemed to be all right. The Hardys flopped to the ground to catch their breath. That was a whale of a rescue, Chet praised them. You bet, Ken grasped weakly. Thanks, fellows. You saved up my life. In a way, it was our fault, Joe replied ruefully. You wouldn't have fallen in if we hadn't come here. But why did you run away when you saw us? Ken hesitated before answering. Mr. Markle, the guard at the gatehouse, said you wanted to talk to me. He warned me about talking to outsiders because of the strict security of, at Elkerton. Joe nodded. We understand, Ken, but... He added, we have something important to ask you, and I don't think you will be going against company rules if you answer. Did anybody use your bike the night before last to deliver a message to our house? Your house? Ken sounded surprised. No, at least not that I know of. Joe went on, did you buy a pedal in Bridgeport to replace the one missing from your bike? Ken again looked surprised. Yes, it was gone yesterday morning when I came to work. I suspected someone must have used my bike and lost the pedal. When I couldn't find it around here, Mr. Markle sent me to Bridgeport to buy a new one. It was on the tip of Frank's tongue to ask the boy if he had seen 
person in the area of the mill carrying a bow and arrow. But suddenly, Mr. Markle and the maintenance man came dashing from the mill. What's going on here? The guard demanded, staring at the Hardys and Ken, who were still dripping wet. Briefly, Frank told the men what had happened. They thanked the brothers warmly for the rescue, and the maintenance man hustled Ken into the mill for dry clothes. He did not invite the parties inside. Frank and Joe oh, turned to Mr. Markle, intending to question him, but before they could, a horn sounded, and a shabby green panel truck approached the plank gate. The guard hurried over to admit the truck, uh, and it entered without stopping. Suddenly, Joe grabbed Frank's arm. Hey, that truck's unmarked. It looks like the one Tony described. The brothers peered after the vehicle, but this time it was far into the grounds and had turned out of sight behind one of the buildings. I wonder, Joe said excitedly, if the driver is the man who gave the pretos the counterfeit bill. The boys had noticed that only the driver wore a cap pulled low and sat slouched over the wheel. If this truck's the same one, it may be connected with Elkerton, Frank said tersely. Both boys, both hardies, though uncomfortably wet, decided to stay and see what they could find out. They hailed Mr. Markle as he walked back from the Elkerton gate. Does that truck belong to Elkerton? And Frank asked him, no, it doesn't. Do you know who does on it? Asked Joe. Mr. Markle shook his head regretfully. Sorry, boys, I'm afraid I'm not allowed to give out such information. Excuse me, I have work to do. He turned and went back into the gatehouse. Come on, fellows, Chet urged. You better not hang around here in those wet clothes. The Hardys, however, were determined to stay long enough to question Ken Blake further, if possible. He'll probably be coming outside soon, said Joe. Frank and I can dry out on the beach by the cave. It won't take long in the hot sun. Chet said, okay, and I know what I'm supposed to do. Wait here and watch for Ken. Frank chuckled. You're a mind reader. Chet took his post at the edge of the woods, and the Hardys hurried down to the river's edge. They spread their slacks and shirts on the sun-warmed rocks. In a short while, the clothing was dry enough to put on. Say, maybe we'll have time to investigate that tunnel before Chet calls us, Joe suggested eagerly. He and Frank started for the cave. But a second later, Chet came running through the woods towards him. Ken came out, but he's gone on an errand, he reported, and explained that the boy had rushed from the mill, dressed in oversized dung, hungries, and a red shirt. He was riding off on his bike when I caught up to him. I told Ken he wanted to see him, but he said he had to make a fast trip downtown and deliver an envelope to the Parker building. We'll catch him there, Frank decided. The three boys ran up the wooden slope and jumped in the green. They kept on the main road to Bayport, hoping to overtake Ken, but they did not pass him. 
He must have taken another route, Joe said. Uh, at the Parker building, there was no parking spaces available. So Chet just stopped his jalopy long enough to drop off Frank and Joe. I'll keep circling the block until you come out, Chet called as he drove away. There was no sign of Ken's bicycle outside the building. The Hardys rushed into the lobby and immediately were met by a five o'clock crowd of office workers streaming from the elevator. Frank and Joe made their way through the throng, but saw no sign of Ken. Joe had an idea. Maybe he was making the delivery to Mr. Peters, the name I saw on the manila envelope I picked up the other day. Let's see if Ken's still in his office. The boys ran their eyes down the building directory, but Mr. Peters was not listed. The brothers questioned the elevator starter, who replied that, so far as he knew, no one by the name of Peters had an office in the building. Joe asked the starter, did you notice a boy wearing dungarees and a bright red shirt in the lobby a few minutes ago? Sure, was the prompt reply. Just before the five o'clock rush started, I saw the boy come in and give an envelope to a man waiting in the corner over there. The man took the envelope and they both left right away. I guess he must be Mr. Peters, Frank said. Could be, the starter agreed. I didn't recognize him. As the boys hurried outside, Joe said, well, we got crossed up on that one. Let's get back to the mill. Ken will have to drop off the bike. The brothers waited at the curb for Chet. In a few minutes, the queen pulled up. All aboard, Chet sang out. Any luck? No. When Frank told Chet they were returning to the mill, their good Frank-natured friend nodded. It's fortunate I brought these sandwiches, he said, indicating a paper bag on the seat beside him. I had a feeling we'd be late to supper. Joe snapped his fingers. That reminds me, I'll stop and phone our family so they won't wait to eat supper for us. After Joe made the calls, they were on their way again. He told Frank and Chet that Mr. Hardy had left a message saying he would not be home until after 10 o'clock. As the queen went down the side road past the Elkerton buildings, Frank thought, if Dad is working for Elkerton, he might be somewhere in the plant this very minute. The same possibility was running through Joe's mind. Wonder if Dad is expecting a break in his secret case. As Chet neared the turn into the mill road, a green truck zoomed out directly in front of the Queen. Chet jammed on his brake, narrowly avoiding a collision, the truck swung around the jalopy at a full speed and roared off toward the highway. The green truck we saw before, Joe exclaimed. This time I got the license number, but couldn't see the driver's face. Let's follow him, follow him, Frank urged. Chet started back in pursuit. That guy ought to be arrested for reckless driving, he declared indignantly. The boys the Hardys peered ahead as they turned right onto the main road, trying to keep the truck in sight. Suddenly, the boys heard a tremendous boom and felt the car shake. An explosion, Joe cried out, turning his head. Look! 
against the sky. A brilliant flash and bellows of smoke came from the direction of Elkerton. Other explosion followed. The plane's blowing up, Joe Grass. <laughs> no part of this episode may be reproduced without my personal permission. Rail Fan Robert's Reading Railroad is a production of Raccoon Gaming Rail's Railroad Productions. And all, all podcast episodes are owned by Raccoon Gaming Rail's Railroad Productions.